0: Section fifty three of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume One The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. CHAPTER Sixteen The Classical Renaissance by Sir Richard C. Jebb. Part One The Renaissance, in the largest sense of the term, is the whole process of transition in Europe from the medieval to the modern order. The revival of learning, by which is meant more especially the resuscitated knowledge of classical antiquity, is the most potent and characteristic of the forces which operated in the Renaissance. That revival has two aspects. In one, it is the recovery of a lost culture. In another, of even higher and wider significance, it is the renewed diffusion of a liberal spirit which for centuries had been dead or sleeping. The conception which dominated the Middle Ages was that of the Universal Empire and the Universal Church. A gradual decadence of that idea, from the second half of the 13th century to the end of the 15th, was the clearest outward sign that a great change was beginning to pass over the world. From the 12th century onwards, there was a new stirring of minds, a growing desire of light, and the first large result was the scholastic philosophy. That was an attempt to codify all existing knowledge under certain laws and formulas, and so to reconcile it logically with the one truth. Just as all rights are referable to the one right, that is, to certain general principles of justice. No revolt was implied there, no break with the reigning tendencies of thought. The direct aim of the schoolmen was not, indeed, to bind all knowledge to the Rock of St. Peter, but the truth which they took as their standard was that to which the Church had given her sanction. In the middle of the fourteenth century, when scholasticism was already waning, Another intellectual movement set in. This was humanism, born in Italy of a new feeling for the past greatness of Rome. And now the barriers, so long imposed on the exercise of the reason, were broken down. Not all at once, but by degrees. It was recognized that there had been a time when men had used all their faculties of mind and imagination without fear or reproof not restricted to certain paths or bound by formulas, but freely seeking for knowledge in every field of speculation and for beauty in all the realms of fancy. Those men had bequeathed to posterity a literature different in quality and range from anything that had been written for a thousand years. They had left, too, works of architecture such that even the mutilated remains had been regarded by legend as the work of supernatural beings, whom heathen poets had constrained by spells. The pagan view was now once more proclaimed, that man was made not only to toil and suffer, but to enjoy. And, naturally enough, in the first reaction from a more ascetic ideal— the lower side of ancient life obscured, with many men, its better aspects. It was thus that humanism first appeared, bringing a claim for the mental freedom of man, and for the full development of his being. But in order to see the point of departure, it is necessary to trace in outline the general course of literary tradition in Europe from the 5th century to the 14th. The fall of the Western Empire in the 5th century was followed by a rapid decline of education and of general culture. The later ages of classical antiquity, if comparatively poor in the higher kind of literary genius, were still familiar with the best writers of Greece and Rome, and continued to be prolific in work inspired by good models. They also retained the traditions of that civilization and social life out of which the classical literature had arisen. But the barbarian invaders of Italy and Gaul were strangers to that civilization. They brought with them a life in which the ancient culture found no place. The schools of the Roman Empire were swept away or died out. Such education as survived was preserved by the Church and was almost wholly confined to ecclesiastics. Monasteries had begun to multiply in the West from the close of the fourth century. Their schools and those attached to cathedrals alone tempered the reign of ignorance. The level of the monastic schools was the higher. In the cathedral schools, the training was usually restricted to such rudiments of knowledge as were indispensable for the secular clergy, that is, reading, writing, arithmetic, and elementary music, but even in the monastic schools, the course was usually meager and narrow. The superior education of the age was chiefly based on a few jejune textbooks, compilations and abridgments from older sources. One of these was the treatise of the African rhetorician Martianus Capella, flourished around 420, on the Septum Artes Liberales, grammar, logic, rhetoric, music, arithmetic, geometry, and astronomy. The form is allegorical. Mercury weds philology, and at their nuptials assigns the arts to her as handmaids. Capella was, however, regarded with disfavor by those Christian teachers who rigorously proscribed pagan literature. And his book, though it remained an authority down to the Renaissance, was not everywhere admitted. Thus, it is absent from Alcuin's catalogue, made around 770, of the library at York, a fairly representative collection of the books which then were most read. The seven arts had been distributed, so early as the 5th century, into the trivium, consisting of grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and the quadrivium, comprising the other four. Grammar was taught by excerpts from Donatus or Priscian, rhetoric often with the aid of extracts from Cicero's De eventione and Topica or the treatise ad herenium. For the trivium, generally a favourite textbook, was Cassiodorus, died five sixty eight, de artibus et disciplinus liberalium artium. For the quadrivium, and for the more advanced logic, the standard manuals were the Treatises of boetius died 524, which included some Latin transcripts from parts of Aristotle's Organon. Boetius, the last of the Romans, was indeed an author of cardinal importance in the higher education of the earlier Middle Ages. Another standard work was an encyclopedia of arts and sciences by Isidore, Bishop of Seville, died 636, containing a mass of information in every recognized branch of knowledge. Originum sive etymologiarum libri venti. It is characteristic of education in the Middle Ages that compendia of this poor kind had largely superseded their own classical sources in the ordinary use of the schools. Note should be taken also of the persistent tendency to look for allegorical and mystic senses beneath the literal meaning of a passage. This tendency dates at least from the teaching of Cassian, flourished around 400, one of the chief founders of Western monarchism. It was applied first to the scriptures, and thence transferred to other books, with an influence which did much to vitiate the medieval study of literature. The period from around 500 to the latter part of the 8th century was that during which the general level of knowledge in Europe was probably lowest. Gregory of Tours, died 595, could declare that the study of letters had perished. Nearly 200 years later, Charles the Great re-echoed the complaint and sought a remedy. Yet, even in those centuries, there were places of comparative light. Chief among these on the continent were the Benedictine houses. It was in 528 that the Abbey of Monte Cassino was founded by St. Benedict. His rule, formulated in 529, provided for regular study. Thenceforth, his order, wherever established, was a powerful agency in the maintenance of knowledge. To the Benedictines is largely due the survival of the Latin classics. Indeed, It would be difficult to overrate their services as guardians of books in the darkest age of Europe. In Germany, the Benedictine Abbey of Fulda, founded by St. Boniface, died 755, was preeminent during the ninth century as a home of literary studies. Meanwhile, the condition of letters in the British islands was somewhat better than that which prevailed on the continent. This was conspicuously the case in Ireland, the stronghold of Celtic monachism, which was independent of Benedictine influences. The Irish monasteries, many of which arose before 500, were prosperous. They were devoted to learning, derived partly from a monastic community, the once famous Insulani, planted around 400 by St. Honoratus in the isle near Cannes, which bears his name and they had the unique distinction of witnessing to an affinity between the Celtic and the Hellenic spirit. Alone among the religious houses of the West in that age, they fostered the study of the Greek fathers. Ireland sent forth not a few of the scholars and missionaries whose names shine most clearly through the gloom of those centuries. St. Columba, died 597, who made Iona a center of light for northern Britain. St. Columbanus died 615, a founder and reformer of monastic houses in Europe. Clement, who succeeded Alcuin around 798, as head of the school at Aachen, and John Scotus Eregena died around 875, whose acquirements included some knowledge of Greek, and whose independence as a philosophical thinker renders him the most interesting intellectual figure of the ninth century. England also, from 600 to 800, was probably less dark than the continent. Augustine, a Benedictine, and his Roman fellow missionaries came in 597, bringing with them the Latin language and Latin books. In 668, the Greek Theodore became 7th Archbishop of Canterbury. He was zealous for the promotion of learning, and certainly introduced some knowledge of Greek among his clergy, though the measure and duration of that knowledge are uncertain. Baeda, died 735, the ascetic monk of Jarrow, was the comprehensive interpreter of all the literature, theological, historical, and educational which had come into England with Christianity. Alcuin died 804, trained in the famous Monastery of York, where he afterwards presided over the school, won repute as a theologian, and more especially as a grammarian. He does not seem to have been a man of originality or force, and he inherited the narrow view which was adverse to pagan lore, but Under the auspices of Charles the Great, he did a large work for education. The reign of that monarch, 768 to 814, saw the first large and systematic effort towards a restoration of letters. The motives which actuated the new emperor of the West were primarily political and social. He felt that it was a vital moment for his realm to mitigate the mischief and reproach of illiteracy, In 782, he induced Alcuin to leave York and to take up his abode at Aachen as the head of a school in connection with the court. With Alcuin's advice and aid, he did his best to stimulate and improve the only educational agencies which existed, those of the episcopal and monastic schools. Bishops were encouraged to provide elementary instruction for the children of the laity. The Capitulary of 789 directs the more important monasteries to establish higher schools, in addition to the ordinary schools provided by religious houses. Not a few of these higher schools became distinguished. Foremost among them was that of the Abbey of Fulda. Others belonged to the abbeys of Tours, Reims, Sengal, and Corvey. Throughout the ninth century, such schools rendered good service to learning. Rabanus Morus, abbot of Fulda, died 856, who was free from any blind prejudice against the classics, did much to liberalize monastic studies. His pupil, Lupus Servatus had a wide range of reading in good Latin authors and studied them with a zeal not unworthy of the Renaissance. Many of these monastic schools perished in the 10th century. In the second half of that century, however, the emperor Otto the Great, 936-73, to 73, enlarged the horizon and stimulated the culture of the German people. His reign brought security to such seats of study as existed, and their welfare was promoted by his brother, the learned Bruno, archbishop of Cologne. Gerbert, Afterwards, Pope Sylvester II, who died in 1003, shows how much was possible for a gifted scholar in the 10th century. He had not merely read a great deal of the best Latin literature, but had appreciated it on the literary side, had imbibed something of its spirit, and had found in it an instrument of self-culture. His case is indeed a very exceptional one, but... Some knowledge, at least, of the Latin classics was not even then a rare accomplishment. A tradition of learning, derived especially from Fulda, had been created, which descended without a break to the time when the University of Paris arose. Nowhere on the continent was there such a violent interruption or such a general blight upon culture as was caused in England and Ireland by the raids of the destroying Northmen. From about the end of the 10th century onwards, culture began to be somewhat more widely diffused. There are indications that the course of Latin reading in the better schools was now no longer confined to meager textbooks, but had become fairly liberal. Thus, at the School of Paderborn in Westphalia, early in the 11th century, the plan of study included Virgil. Horace, Statius, and Sallust. Towards the close of that century, Bernard of Chartres, after teaching his pupils the rules of grammar from Donatus and Priscian, led them on to the Latin poets, orators, and historians, dwelling especially on the rhetorical precepts of Cicero and Quintilian. His method is praised by John of Salisbury. Writing in the middle of the 12th century who was himself strongly imbued with a love of classical studies, being especially familiar with Horace and with much of Cicero. Among other classics who found medieval readers may be named Terence a favorite, Ovid, Lucan, Martial, Caesar, Livy, and Suetonius. The incipient revival of a better literary taste was checked in the 13th century by the influence of the scholastic philosophy. That discipline, intent on subtleties of logic and metaphysic, was indifferent to literary form and soon became encumbered with the technical jargon which Erasmus ridicules. Such doctors as Albertus Magnus and Duns Scotus lent the prestige of their authority to barbarous Latin. In the universities, dialectic now shared the foremost place with theology, and their professors were generally adverse to the literary subjects represented by the trivium. In England, France, and Germany, during the 13th century, the study of ancient literature gained no ground, but rather receded, and the 14th century showed no improvement. Italy, meanwhile, where the scholastic philosophy had taken less hold, had been showing some signs of a growing interest in the Latin classics for more than a century before Petrarch. With him, the Italian revival of learning began in earnest, and at a time when, owing to the causes above noticed, there were as yet few symptoms of such a movement in the other countries of Europe. The medieval fortunes of the Latin classics differed widely from those of the Greek. The classical Latin language and literature were never wholly lost. But after the 5th century, a knowledge of classical Greek rapidly faded out of the West until it became practically extinct. Between the fall of the Western Empire and the Renaissance, no general provision for teaching Greek existed in the West similar to that which was made in regard to Latin. Charles the Great wished, indeed, to restore Greek, mainly for the practical purpose of intercourse with the East. One of the capitularies attests his design, Graecus et Latinus Scholas in perpetuum manere ordinavimus, but it is doubtful whether his purpose was anywhere fulfilled. Some study of Greek was fostered, as we have seen, in the Irish monasteries, and a few instances of it occur in other places. Thus, in the 10th century, Greek was studied by some brethren of the Abbey of St. Gall. The Council of Vienne, 1311, had proposed to establish chairs of Greek in several cities of Europe, but nothing was done. Several eminent men of Western Europe, in the course of those centuries, certainly possessed some knowledge of Greek, though it is often difficult to say how much. After the schism between the Eastern and Western churches, sporadic settlements of Greeks occurred in the West, especially in France, and Latin controversialists had a new motive for acquiring the language of their opponents. Gross Test, according to Matthew Paris, was aided by a Greek priest of St. Albans in translating the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs into Latin. The Benedictine historians give lists of the persons in each century who were reputed to know Greek, but it may well be that these lists, short though they are, include men who had merely gained some slight knowledge of the language from intercourse with Greeks. In Italy, doubtless, the number of those who knew some Greek was larger than elsewhere, owing to the greater closeness of Italy's relations with the East. But even at Constantinople itself, in the 14th century, a sound knowledge of ancient Greek was confined to a narrow circle, and an intelligent appreciation of the ancient Hellenic literature was probably rarer still. Enough has been said to guard against the notion that the Italian revival of learning was something more sudden and abrupt than it actually was. The movement in the second half of the 14th century would appear almost miraculous, if the new light were supposed to have flashed upon Italy, at Petrarch's word, from a background of utter darkness. The fact is, rather, that the dawn had long been growing in the sky. On the other hand, The revival, which dates from Petrarch, was in a very definite sense the beginning of a new era. The appreciation of classical antiquity, which came with it, differed in two respects from any which the earlier Middle Ages could show. In the first place, the excellence of literary form exhibited by the ancient masters of Latin style now became a direct object of study and of imitation. Such portions of these authors as had been read in the period preceding the Renaissance had been valued chiefly for the facts or sentiments or supposed allegorical meanings which could be drawn from them. They were, as a rule, but dimly apprehended as literature and had very little influence on the medieval writing of Latin. The second difference was still more important. Ancient literature was now welcomed not only as supplying standards of form, but as disclosing a new conception of life, a conception freer, larger, more rational, and more joyous than the medieval, one which gave unfettered scope to the play of the human feelings, to the sense of beauty, and to all the activities of the intellect. Ancient Latin writers used the word humanitas, to denote the civilizing and refining influence of polite letters and of the liberal arts, as they also applied the epithet, humanus, to a character which had received that influence. The Italian scholars of the Renaissance, to whom the classical literature of antiquity was not merely a model, but a culture, and indeed a life, found it natural to employ a phrase not used by the ancients, and to speak of litere humane, or litere humanioris, meaning, by the comparative, not secular rather than theological, but distinctively humane, more so, that is, than other literature. The humanist, a term already known to Ariosto, is the student of humane letters. A man like John of Salisbury imbued with the loving study of good Latin classics, or even a man like Gerbert, whose genius gave almost a foretaste of the revival, was still divided by a broad and deep gulf from the Italian humanist of the age opened by Petrarch. Medieval orthodoxy would have recoiled from that view of human life, and especially from that claim of absolute liberty for the reason which formed part of the humanist's ideal Indeed, we are continually reminded throughout the course of the Italian Renaissance that the new movement has medieval forces to combat or to reconcile. It is only some of the clearer and stronger spirits in that time of transition that thoroughly succeed in harmonizing Christian teaching with a full acceptance of the new learning. Francesco Petrarca, 1304-74, to who thus modified for euphony's sake his surname Petracco, was born at Arezzo. He was nine years old when his father settled at Avignon, the seat since 1309 of the papacy. At Avignon, Petrarch passed his boyhood, already charmed at school by Cicero's periods, and there, when he was 23, he saw in a church the laura of his sonnets. The central interests of his life from an early age was in the classical past of Italy he longed to see the ancient glories of Rome revived twice in poetical epistles he adjured Benedict the Twelfth to quit the Babylon on the Rhone for the city on the Tiber in thirteen thirty six when he saw Rome for the first time, he was impressed by the contrast between the grandeur of the decaying monuments. And the squalor of their medieval surroundings. Then he spent some years in his beautiful retreat at Vaucluse near Avignon, brooding on Roman history. There he began a Latin epic, Africa, with Scipio Africanus for its hero, a poem which slowly grew under his hand but was never completed. Tame in parts and lacking Virgilian finish, yet full of powerful and musical lines. But it was chiefly, if not wholly, his canzoniere, where he had reached absolute perfection within a limited sphere, that won him the honor of being crowned with the laurel on the Capitol at Rome, 1341, aged 37. Thenceforth he was recognized as the foremost man of letters in Europe, When in May 1347, Rienzi was proclaimed head of the Holy Roman Republic, Petrarch hailed the tribune as a heaven-sent deliverer, who was to rid Italy of the foreign tyrants, as humanism loved to style the feudal nobles. With many of these tyrants, such as the Colonesi and the Visconti, Petrarch lived, then and afterwards, on terms of much cordiality and reciprocal advantage. Patriotic archaeology had inspired that crazy scheme of restoring the Roman Commonwealth, but the same enthusiasm for classical antiquity made Petrarch the leader in a solid and permanent restoration of literature. He was steeped in the life, the thoughts and the emotions of the Latin classics His way of using them might be contrasted with Dante's in the De Monarchia. To Petrarch, they were real men, his Italian ancestors. He was the first who zealously collected Latin manuscripts, inscriptions, and coins. He was the first typical humanist in his cultivation of Latin style. And with him, the imitatio veterum was never slavish. In a letter to Boccaccio, he remarks that the resemblance of a modern's work to his ancient model should not be that of a portrait to the original, but rather the family likeness of child to parent. He deprecated even the smallest debts of phrase to the ancients, and was annoyed when it was pointed out to him that in one of his eclogues he had unconsciously borrowed from Virgil the words atque intonatore. The Latin letters, which he poured out so abundantly, were in large part finished essays, in a style founded mainly on Seneca and St. Augustine, but tinged, especially in his later period, by Cicero. In them he was ever pleading, directly or indirectly, the cause of humanism. An orthodox churchman, a student of the Vulgate and of the Fathers, he had nothing in common with the neo-paganism of some later men. He advocated the study of the classics as the key to a larger mental life, not contrary to the Christian, but ancillary to it, one which should educate and exercise men's highest faculties. In all subjects, he was adverse to pedantic and narrowing methods. If his egotism was absorbing, it was the reflex of a passion for self-culture, Here he had a kinship with Goethe. The desire of fame was a ruling motive with him, as with so many Italians of the maturer Renaissance, but in him it was inseparable from the desire to have a new pattern of self-culture recognized. Nor did he plead in vain. The age was ready for some new kind of intellectual activity. The subtleties of the schoolman's dialectic were beginning to pall and the professional studies of the universities were unsatisfying petrarch by his great gifts and unique position succeeded in making countless friends and patrons for humanism among those persons whose favor was indispensable to its earlier progress for it should be remembered that humanism was not cradled in the bosom of universities which indeed for a long while were mostly hostile to it nor again was it brought in by a sweeping movement of the popular mind humanism depended in its infancy and youth on encouragement by powerful and wealthy individuals through whom the humanist gained a footing and an audience in this or that italian city petrarch won the ear of men who became patrons of humanism but he did more than that he stimulated an inner circle of disciples foremost among whom was his devoted friend and admirer, Boccaccio. When, therefore, Petrarch is designated as the father or founder of humanism, the description is correct, if rightly understood. He was, in his own person, the first brilliant humanist. He was also the first effective propagator of humanism in the world at large, and he inspired chosen pupils who continued the tradition. In his letter to Homer, Petrarch says, quote, "I have not been so fortunate as to learn Greek, end quote. but he had at least made some attempt to do so. Barlam, a Calabrian by birth who had long resided at Constantinople, came to Italy in thirteen thirty nine on a mission from the Emperor Cantacusinus. It was probably in thirteen forty two that Petrarch began to study Greek with him. I had thrown myself into the work, he says, with eager hope and keen desire, but the strangeness of the foreign tongue and the early departure of my teacher baffled my purpose. The failure, thus shortly told, throws an instructive light on the difficulties which beset a revival of Greek. No aids to the acquisition of Greek then existed in the Latin or the Italian language, the rudiments of grammar and vocabulary, could be acquired only from a Greek-speaking teacher. If the learner's aim had been merely to gain some knowledge of the Romaic spoken and written in the daily life of the Levant, tutors in plenty could have been found at Venice or at any Italian center of commerce. But a scholarly knowledge of ancient Greek was a rare attainment, Rarer still was a scholarly acquaintance with the Greek Classics. Even at Constantinople, such knowledge was then possessed only by a few persons of superior education, including those who were professional students or men of letters. A Greek teacher of this class could be drawn to Italy as a rule only by some definite prospect of honor and emolument. The Italian revival of Greek in the 14th and 15th centuries was effected mainly by a small number of highly accomplished greeks who were induced to settle as professors at florence or other centers the revival was also furthered by the visits which several italian scholars made to constantinople for the purpose of studying the language there in viewing the italian revival of greek as a whole we must remember its essential dependence on these sources. The higher Byzantine level of Greek scholarship in that age was the highest to which Italy could then aspire. Italian students of Greek, in the earlier and middle periods of the Renaissance, learned the classical language from men to whom its modern form was a vernacular. This was, in one way, a distinct advantage Since there is a large continuity both of idiom and of vocabulary between classical Greek and the more polished modern Greek. On the other hand, the Byzantine feeling for the genius and style of the classical literature had become grievously defective. End of section 53. Recording by Linda Johnson.